The Real Chemistry Podcast connects the dots between our guests and the innovative work they do to show up and shape the future of healthcare. Why? So you, the listener, are encouraged to join us on our relentless pursuit to make the world a healthier place for all. Some may call it idealism. We call it real chemistry. Good afternoon. This is Aaron Strout, CMO of Real Chemistry and the host of the Real Chemistry Podcast. And today um, we're going to go back to school. We're going to learn a lot about something called market access and value-based pricing. I'm assuming many of you have heard about those, but I've got an expert, a woman named Amy Grog. She's our um, CEO advisory board member. She's also on several other boards, and she is a true expert in this space. You'll find that out quickly based on her life experience. That includes a fellowship in HEOR. You'll find out what HEOR is. Uh, we'll talk about some of her thoughts on the industry, what's got her excited, and uh, what we can do to help clean up and improve our overall healthcare system. Plus, I think you'll really love her choice of Deserted Island album. So stay tuned. Welcome, Amy. Excited to have you here today. And uh, I'm really excited to school up some of our friends and colleagues and listeners on terms like market access and value-based pricing and HEOR. So why don't we start with my first question, and that is, as I go through my guests' backgrounds and profiles, I always like to pick out little interesting tidbits. And one of the things that I noticed is that early days, you did two different uh, HEOR fellowships, one at the University of South Carolina and then Sandoz uh, Pharmaceuticals. Tell us what HEOR stands for, what it means, and how you decided to head down this path. Because I, I think especially when you did this a few years back, uh, maybe not as many people were thinking about that as they are today. Well, first of all, thank you so much, Aaron. I'm excited to be here. And these are topics I'm passionate to talk about. And I appreciate you saying a few years back. So we'll let listeners decide how many years back. <laughs> At least two or three. <laughs> so um, first of all, HEOR stands for Health Economics and Outcomes Research. Um, and so what that really means is looking at the cost and value of different healthcare treatments. I was in pharmacy school and knew I wanted to be in healthcare, but I also really liked business and understanding the value of products. And um, I had a professor who in the very early days, he was not a professor of health economics at the time. He was a cardiology professor, but he said to me, this is an area I think you might like. And so I researched it a little bit. When I did that fellowship, it was actually one fellowship with two years, a year of academic work and then a year of real world work at Sandoz Pharmaceuticals. Um, and it was really an eye-opening experience because I began to learn not just what the drugs are used for, but how they can be most effective in the real world and how do we think about paying for them. So that's why I went into that. And it turned out to be um, something that I didn't plan on when you're early, you don't know where you're going to land, but I, it certainly changed the trajectory of my career. Well, it's a, a great setup to what we're going to talk about today. And, um, like I said, that was one of those nice little happy accidents. Cause I know a fair amount about you, but I didn't know that. I do want to touch on the fact that since then in the, uh, few years after that, you've had some amazing experience in senior roles at top healthcare companies like Janssen, um, Exenda, and then Amerisource Bergen. Uh, tell us about some key lessons that you took away from these, what I'm assuming would be amazing experiences at these very well-known companies. Sure. I'll start out a little bit with Janssen, which is part of Johnson & Johnson. And that was my first 
if you will, real job after I finished all my training. And I started there in the health economics department and worked my way through various roles, ending up leading their health economics and biostatistics group at Janssen for the U.S. And I think one of the biggest lessons I learned there is J&J is a very big company. Um, And so I started my career in what I call corporate America, right? But what you quickly learn is that it is about the people you're working with. And if you build a team that you see as people who know more than you do, you learn and they learn. And I think that that was one of my earliest lessons there. I will also say my second lesson there um, as I kind of worked through J&J was um, to take few leaps into the unknown. So I was a pharmacist and a scientist, and I'll even use the word nerd a little bit. Um, But I had an opportunity very early in my tenure there to move to California, which was all the way across the country. My accent may be coming through now, but I'm not from California. Um, To move to California and do a role that was a what was called a regional outcomes research role, which was it had never been done before. And it was a role to work with payers, um, health systems, um, Medicaid's around the country to do health economic studies. And it was a test case. We had to figure out what it was. There was no roadmap. I was out there with account managers and sales reps, which were um, looking at me like, why is this nerd coming to these meetings with us? But that really gave me an opportunity to start to understand what population health decision makers are looking for when they're trying to choose what goes on formulary or what they're going to pay for or how they're going to set up a treatment algorithm. Um, So those kind of leaps into the unknown make a big difference in your career. I then joined, I was ready to kind of change gears and step out of the pharmaceutical industry and and kind of go to the other side, which is the service-based side, um, which is where real chemistry is today. Um, And so I I went to Accenda, which was eventually purchased by Amerisource Bergen, and had various leadership roles in Accenda and Amerisource Bergen. And I think that what was interesting there is, as I had more and more leadership roles, um, I learned that you have to find a balance between a matrixed collaborative organization while not killing the entrepreneurial spirit of people within that. And that's not easy. Um, It's really one of those balances that You want to find efficiencies in business. You want to find collaboration because you find better solutions to problems with collaboration. But you also need to find ways to have these little islands of entrepreneurs who can take headers into areas unknown that may provide excitement. And I think the best organizations find ways to do that. I worked with some, I've worked with some companies and other service companies who they might have an entire group of people who have no profit goals, um, no billable goals. Their entire job is to take leaps into wonder what could be. And I think finding that balance is important. And then I think the second lesson and big lesson that I really learned um, while at Ameris or Spurgeon is, you know, when you're working with lots of different organizations and for our listeners who might not know what Ameris or Spurgeon is, they're, um, one of the largest pharmaceutical wholesalers in the world and definitely in the United States. And so they kind of sit in the middle as a wholesaler. They work with every single manufacturer and they work with every kind of customer who 
um, gives pharmaceuticals, whether it's a hospital, a pharmacy, a long-term care facility. And so they work with all different types of organizations. Um, and so our customers were varied. And I think that one of the most important lessons is, is that when you're trying to find ways to work with different types of customers, people don't buy what you do. They buy why you do it. And I think it's really important that when you sit across from any type of customer, whether they're a pharmaceutical manufacturer trying to bring a new product to market, or whether they're a very large health system in Philadelphia and they're trying to understand how they can best provide care and how you fit into that, they want to know that the company sitting across from them and specifically the person sitting across from them knows why they're there. What is their purpose in being there? And I feel like companies that know their purpose and can articulate that are really successful. And so understanding that people, once again, and I'll repeat it because I think it's a really important sentence. People don't buy what you do. They buy why you do it. And if you know why you do it, then you're going to be successful because they understand why you're sitting across the table from them. Well, that's awesome. And uh, Simon Sinek would be very proud of you what would. you're saying, right? Because exactly he talks right. about what's your why and the golden orb. Those are great lessons though. Thank you. And, and I really love just how varied, but how insightful they are. And I personally have seen those, you know, those types of activities working really well in my experiences. I do want to touch on your CEO advisory board role. You were, we were lucky enough to get you to join us back in February. And I think people will quickly realize with some of the things you've already talked about why that is, but in particular, there are a couple of areas and I touched on these up front. that's market access and uh, value-based price or value-based care for those that may not know the sort of what these are or what the nuances are, maybe you could provide a little bit of a definition and talk about you know why they're important. You know, I, I, I'm excited to and happy to, and I'll share a personal moment, which was I was taking my 11-year-old daughter to school this morning and she knew I was going to be doing a podcast today and she had a presentation at school today. And she asked me what mine was on. And I said, <laughs> market access and healthcare. And she said, I understand what each of those words mean, but I'm not sure I understand what they mean together. And so uh, I tried to explain it to my 11-year-old daughter this morning. But the simplest answer for market access in healthcare is what you're trying to do is ensure that appropriate patients have rapid and sustained access to the products they need when they need them. And that's what it is. Now, what does that really mean? That means that in our healthcare system in the United States, and I'm going to speak about the United States, we can talk more about internationally if you want to, but for now, I'm going to kind of focus on the United States. You know, we have a very complex healthcare system. Um, we have different payers, whether they're government payers like Medicare or Medicaid, whether they're private payers, and in some cases, the patient themselves is the payer and has to make that decision. So how do you make certain that people have the right people have access to the medication they need when they need it and can keep that access. Well, what you have to do is you have to provide the clinical value and tell that story, and you have to provide the economic value and tell that story. And at the end of the day, I think understanding those two pieces and how they fit together is an important um, role that service-based companies play, whether it's real chemistry and some of the companies that you have and some of the services that you have, which is 
looking at health policies and how those might impact whether someone has access to care where they need it, or looking at large pieces of data and how you can understand how patients may be receiving care, how effective it is in the real world. Those are the types of things that you need to have when you're trying to provide the best market access for a drug. I'm going to go on because I know this is a long answer, but I'm going to finish it talking about value for a minute. I think if people think about value, inherently it has kind of a cost piece to it, right? I think if, if you're a consumer, you think of value generally as what's the lowest cost I can get a lot of times. In healthcare, value has um, a slightly, the way I think about that equation of what is value, the simple form is it's what's the quality you get for what cost, right? But it's a little more complicated than that because it's not just what's the quality you get for what cost. You have to bring the patient into that mix and you have to bring the healthcare system into that mix. So I actually think about it as what's the quality plus the service. By service, I mean, how quickly can they get the product? Is the patient satisfied? Did they have a good experience? Over what does that cost to provide? And not just the actual cost of the product, but what are the indirect costs? Did I have to drive 100 miles to get that care? Um, did this product cause me to have potentially less hospitalizations and therefore it cost a little more on the cost of the product, but overall the cost was less? So it's a complicated um, equation in healthcare, um, but it's important to understand because just looking at the product's cost is not going to tell you the answer. Just looking at whether it works is not going to tell you the answer. Just looking at whether the patient can get it easily is not going to tell you the answer. You have to mix all of those together to get to what is value. Well, thank you for doing that because I've spent a fair amount of time, you know, here at Real Chemistry talking to really smart people like Rita Glaze and um, Guy DeAndrea and uh, Brian Reed, but I really loved how clear you made that. And I think it is hard for people to understand the nuances, right? Because very few people take that big step back and look at, you know, all of those factors. And particularly if you are a payer, government or private, those are all the considerations. And if you're a drug company or a medical, you know, uh, device manufacturer, diagnostic company, obviously these things come into play with that. You have this great saying, so you, you nodded your head a little bit to the accent earlier. Um, I think it simplifies the importance of market access and you've touched on this already, but I'd love for you to share that quote and tell us a little bit more about why today that's so critically important. Well, what I said was, and this is flies against my mother, who was a elementary school teacher for 35 years. If it ain't paid for, nothing else matters. And I, I know that's a um, little folksy in homes and, you know, however, I think it's really important to kind of drill down to what you're really trying to say here, because if it isn't paid for, and, and you can parse out that sentence, um, if it ain't paid for, well, who is paying for it? And in the U.S., that could be a lot of different payers, inclusive of the patient themselves. What's their out-of-pocket cost and what decision are they having to make? Um, certainly what I'll call commercial, commercial insurers like the Aetnas of the world, the Uniteds of the world, um, they make those decisions, Blue Crosses of the world. They're trying to make decisions on what products 
are going to provide the best value. Back to that equation we talked about, the most quality with the right services for the least cost, right? And how they look at that. And so if they're not going to pay for it, bringing the greatest product to market doesn't matter because the patient can't get it, right? At the end of the day, if the patient isn't able to get it and be able to sustain getting it for as long as they need it, then it really doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how nice the marketing is. It doesn't matter whether it has less side effects. None of those things matter if someone's not willing to pay for it and understand the value of it. So for me, I think that what I've seen, I've been in the pharmaceutical industry for the last two to three decades. um, And I would say when I started, the pharmaceutical industry was still very much a army of sales reps in the doctor's offices, giving samples, giving little tchotchkes and, you know, working to get doctors to prescribe their medications. Now what you see is many pharmaceutical companies, if not all of them, understand that they have to demonstrate this value. And it's important that doctors have access to the best um, information about new drugs and how to use them. But they, the pharmaceutical companies now understand they have to demonstrate why you should pay for it. And so they've, they understand we have to have the right information. We have to understand the healthcare systems. It's not just um, the best salesman wins now. It's what is the right product we're bringing to market. Yeah. And it is such a complicated time right now. And I think especially as we see new therapies emerge and you know, moving into sort of this more preventative medicine, right, versus treating sick. And it is complicated. And I I do appreciate, you know, we at Real Chemistry, not to make this a a plug for us, but uh, we do have some experts. We brought a couple of firms into the mix, Discern, Health, and uh, Alicia. And I, I, the more I learn about this space and the more I find out about, you know, sort of how lucky we are to have health economists and outcomes researchers and what they do and how they look at the market, it's such a value to our customers because obviously we can help them commercialize. We can help them find patients. But to your point, you know, if the tree falls in the woods and no one hears it, like, does it really exist? And in this case, so critical to understand all of the different levers and, you know, all those considerations, especially as we get more patient centric, right? So it's not just enough to make sure that the companies can get what they need or the payers will pay for it. But really the most important thing is, is that the patients get the treatments they need with the quality they need it at, and that it's the best pay, you know, the best treatment for them. So thank you for, for yeah. sharing that. I'll just add one other little thing here. And I think about this as it's a continuum of how to think about defining value. So you have to have a product that works. Obviously, you have to have a product that works and understand how it works, right? And that sometimes is complicated too. What are the best patients for it? I'm talking clinically. You know, are they people who are a certain age or have a certain health history or whatnot? Once you know if it works, understanding the value of it and demonstrating that to make certain that it's covered, right, underneath the right plans within the insurance company and can get paid for, Um, But it is important. And I think what's great about Real Chemistry, and I'll continue the um, advertisement for just a minute and why I joined the CEO advisory board. Um, I learned about Real Chemistry and its previous name, W2O, um, maybe four years ago when Amerisource Bergen was um, working with them and Exenda. And I think that at the end of the day, you guys have an interesting mix. And that mix is important, whether it's Real Chemistry or other companies, which is having access to data that you can understand what's going on out there 
knowing how that data fits into the current policies and reimbursement structures in the United States. And then what real chemistry has that's a little bit unique is being able to communicate that to the right people, whether it's a patient, whether it's a payer, whether it's a doctor, right? Being able to understand what those people are using to make decisions and communicate that effectively. So I think all of those pieces really are important to fit together. And at the end of the day, understanding patients and what they need um, is more than just a claim that you see from a medical database or more than the doctor sees in the 92 seconds they may spend with the patient. It's also understanding that patient and how they function in the world. And you guys use data to do that as well. And I think understanding from a social media perspective, from what they're doing out in the world, how does this drug going to help them and pulling all that together? Because at the end of the day, if it ain't paid for, nothing else matters. And once it's paid for, if the patient doesn't take it, it really doesn't matter either. So that piece of um, adherence and compliance and making certain you understand the patient in this is important too. Yeah. Um, thank you for for uh, adding that on because that is a critical piece of it that adherence is, is so important and communication is so important. And thank you for the kind words. We really appreciate that. I do love it when people share stories and you and I during our prep you know, you had an anecdote about a recent visit that you had that I think outlines some of the good and the bad and the ugly about what's going on with our healthcare system. Would you mind sharing that anecdote with our listeners? Sure. So, um, and this doesn't have to do with pharmaceuticals. It's the healthcare system in general. But, you know, I, I went to um, a doctor for a very minor dermatologic thing on my foot um, and uh, um, was happy to do it. The doctor was great. And the doctor was great throughout it. I'll just say that. But um, and it, she was wonderful. And it ended up, she wanted to do a little biopsy of what she found on my foot. Great. Um, and then they scheduled a follow-up visit. And so first of all, that, that visit was partially covered under my insurance. Um, and so I paid my copay on the first visit and then, um, she scheduled a follow-up visit and I came back to the follow-up visit and the office said, that'll be whatever it was. and I said, I I don't know why I'm paying another. I said, this is just a quick follow-up to look at the incision, which was very tiny, (laughs) literally two millimeters. And, um, and her commentary to me was, well, first of all, I have to charge you for any visit follow-up or not. Secondly, I do this because I want to make certain that if something happens, I don't get sued. And thirdly, the results of my test weren't back yet. So they did it even for no reason for me to be there. And so um, I'm going to reiterate the doctor was great. She didn't, she was not, it was not the doctor's fault per se. Um, That's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about our healthcare system kind of being broken and inefficient. So what's the value in that second visit for me? Did I need to be there? Did the healthcare system need to pay for that? The insurance company paid for part of that. I paid for part of it. Did that cost need to happen? And Those kind of things, I think, are what really makes our healthcare system a little broken. And there's lots of reasons for why that happened. It wasn't just legal, but that's part of it. It wasn't just what the insurance company said should have happened or what she felt should have happened. So I think at the end of the day, when I think about an example like that, you know, I'm I'm lucky. I can afford that, right? And that's just kind of honest. I'm lucky I can afford that next copay. But what about lots of people who can't afford that? Most people are trying their best to find health care that they can afford. And do they really need that extra second copay? No, they don't. 
Did that visit need to happen? No, it didn't, right? And I think that at the end of the day, what we want to understand is when you look at that value is quality and service over cost. When you think about that, that equation would help us if we use that in those situations and ask ourselves, is this really worth it? It's not. And I think that happens every day. And that was just a really simple example with me. Um, But it worries me because I don't want that to happen to people who can't afford that. Why don't we spend that money or that person spend that money on something else in their lives? Well, thank you for sharing that. I'm going to go off script and ask you a drill down question on that because you're a person that has spent a lot of time in the right places and probably has given this some thought. How do we fix that? Like, how do we fix this inefficiency in the system? And I don't mean that, like, obviously, we're not going to solve that on a 30-minute podcast. But for instance, we had a gentleman named Dr. Joseph um, Habush on the show a couple of years ago. He's spoken, and he talked about this $1 trillion sort of healthcare problem and how you could sort of take some of those costs out. I think the issue is the government, I'm not trying to bash them, but aren't, aren't super efficient in doing things like this, right? People don't necessarily want to trust drug companies to do this. They don't want to trust the payers or the providers. So who steps in and and how do we sort of help improve some of this waste and increase the value in the marketplace? Well, simple question be, for you, right? I think I would be on, um, <laughs> I'd be on many podcasts if I had an answer to that. Um, I, you know, I do think there's a couple things. And I think what I would say is we have to align incentives. So you can't fix the entire system tomorrow. So um, as much as I would love that the answer is we have universal health care and we have a social one socialized medicine system of care, that's not the easiest answer either. And there's lots of reasons why that's not the easiest answer, inclusive of innovation and lots of other things that kind of get lost in the discussion when you think about one system of health care. Um, but I will say that aligning in incentives matters. And so we've seen lots of demonstration projects over the years that try to better align incentives. So whether it's um, in oncology, they had medical care homes where they actually had the oncology practice look at the entire patient and would pay them for the full picture of that care as opposed to just every single procedure, drug, et cetera, right? And so I think if you can align incentives to say you doctor or you hospital or whomever it is, or even you insurance company, um, your best bet is to align the incentives to say, if you understand the value of treatment, and this is above and beyond just drugs, right? If I have cancer, this specific type of cancer, this is the most efficient and best way to treat this type of cancer with the patient, with the right pharmaceuticals with the right other procedures. And at the end of the day, I'm going to look at you and say, did you follow the best evidence that there is out there? And I'm going to reimburse you, doctor, based on those incentives, the outcomes that you see, not a fee structure that's um, individual procedures, drugs, et cetera. And I think if we can align incentives and start to do that in large pockets around the country, it starts to help answer that question. Now, I'm going to repeat, There's, if there was an answer, we would have found it. And, and it's, an, it's a complicated thing. And, and I also am not going to be political, but I'll say in our current political environment, just this week on the debt ceiling, we don't have an environment right now that is very 
uh, collaborative and bipartisan. And it requires that. It requires the very big corporations, whether they're pharmaceutical corporations or other healthcare corporations or insurance companies, along with the doctors and the patients, finding a way through that. And we just have a difficult time right now. So maybe if we can find ways to align incentives, and I'm going to bring up something really quickly, which is the 21st Century Cures Act, which was passed in December of 2016, I believe. It did a lot of things in that in that act. Um, and I won't spend, we could spend a two-hour podcast on that act, but I will say um, it did do some interesting things, which is it tried to find some of these answers. It tried to make it more um, effective and efficient for pharmaceutical companies to bring products to market using different types of data and research. It specifically targeted rare diseases to help those patients who can cost the healthcare system a crazy amount of money to find care or treatments for those diseases. You've seen um, new therapies like CAR T therapies, which are genetic type therapies, gene therapies. Um, But it also did something that doesn't get a lot of press, which is it talked about intraoperability of data. And as a researcher and a health outcomes researcher, that piece of that act was very exciting to me. Now, I don't know that we've seen the promise of that as much as I would have liked to have seen in the last five years. We're almost five years since it passed. But that said, that you can't block access to data just because you want to own it. It said we need to have data that's interoperable. If we could see how best therapies are working or treatments are working or surgeries are working or algorithms of care are working, we could start to align the right incentives. And to me, that's kind of the promise of the future and what I hope for. That's my um, big hope for the future is that we're able to harness that power and then go forward. I knew if anyone had an answer, even if it was sort of the framework of an answer, it would be you. So that's very pragmatic. It is good to know that we're chipping away. Um, I guess one of the answers to anyone who's listening is let's collaborate more and let's elect good officials that are willing to cooperate. People like Alyssa Slotkin, uh, who we support here and and really like her quite a bit. Um, I do want to ask you a couple more questions and then we'll wrap up. One of which is what has you most excited in the market access space right now? Well, honestly, I already answered that question, which I think is this interoperability of data. Um, I think the power that we have looking across different types of data um, is unbelievably exciting. Um, When I started in this space 20 plus years ago, um, you know, we were using data, but we didn't have the same um, access to the large amounts of data we have today. We didn't have things that made it easier. Um, We didn't have electronic medical records where we could actually access care and clinical data. And so for me, what makes me excited is my hope is, is that we're going to continue to see amazing strides forward in utilizing and harnessing that data to make the best decisions and that people will respect and trust that data. I also, at some point, and maybe this is utopian, um, I'd like to see us have that at a level that the consumer can access it. Now, that's not happening today. Um, You know, today we can go to uh, consumer reports and look up which car is the best or which um, outdoor grill is the best, right? Whatever that is. Um, You can't really do that with drugs. You can't really do that with treatment algorithms. It's just not set up in a way that the consumer can see it and understand it. 
Now I understand it's more complicated than, you know, which grill you should buy, but that doesn't mean the consumer shouldn't play a role in it and shouldn't have access to information that they can take in and help be a part of making their decisions. So for me, data and how we connect all these pieces of data is what's exciting. And I think it's coming. I I, I don't think that that horse has left the barn, if you will. Um, it has not quite reached the you know end goal there, but I'm excited about it. Well, I love it. And obviously we at Real Chemistry care a, dr- a great amount about data and interoperability. And it's funny, we actually had a podcast guest probably four or five episodes ago, a guy named Artie Arianpour of Seekster, the CEO of Seekster. And we talked about a lot of these very same things. So lots of synergy there. Um, I do want to ask two more questions, one of which you probably partially answered as well, too, which is I always like to ask guests, if you had one wish, what would it be and why? So we've already cleared the data interoperability piece. Um, What else would you wish for? Well, my initial thought is um, I'd like to survive uh, the teenage years with my daughter. (laughs) Um, Many of us feel that same way. Which I will, but yep. um, that's a, that's a that's a new phenomenon in our household. Um, but you know, I, I'm going to answer this in a pretty personal way for just a minute, and if you'll bear with me for just a minute, you know, one part of the 21st Century Cures Act was increasing access to mental health care, and I think that my most fervent wish is that if I could have a world where mental health care didn't prevent people from not living their best lives. Um, You know, I have uh, family members and very close family members who have struggled with it their entire lives. And, you know, I think people often say happiness would be my biggest wish. And and I think what I've seen is, is that if we had a world where people were able to live their best life and not have debilitating anxiety and depression and other types of mental illness, I think that would be an amazing world. And you would see things in this world that we often get overlooked in those people. So for me, that's a very personal wish. And, and you know, I, I was thinking about this and you had given me a heads up, you were going to ask me this, and that's a very personal wish for me. But I also think it's very important for the rest of the world that we find a way to eliminate mental illness in an effective and safe way so that people can live their best lives. Um, and that's what I would wish. Well, bless you for saying that as someone that's been deeply personally touched with that as well. That's a a great wish. Um, So on a cheerier note, (laughs) even though that's a very good and uh, helpful one, I do like to also ask guests to get to know them a little bit better, to imagine themselves on a proverbial deserted island. They can only take one album with them uh, to keep them, you know, entertained and occupied. Which album would you pick? It's so hard to answer this. There's so many answers. I, 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 I even polled a few friends asking about this and they had great answers. They had Madonna's Immaculate Collection. They had Abba Gold, all of these, which shows my age. Um, but I'm going to tell you what popped into my head first. And this is a little history of me is it was Green Day's American Idiot. Mm. And um, in I, I've loved rock and, and hard rock most of my life and still do. Um, I still listen to Hair Nation on Sirius XM almost every day um, <laughs> to give a shout out to that. Um, but that album is one of, if I, in the last 20 years, one of the best albums that's ever been put out. And it has all kinds of songs on it that are thought provoking, 
um, can make you dance, can make you angry, all of the, the above. So I'm going to go with my first instinct, which was Green Day's American Idiot. I personally love that one. And just to share something a little uh, about me, I have a 22-year-old daughter, 19-year-old son, and 14-year-old daughter. And uh, I, I like to think my gift to my children, one of my gifts is music because I've always listened to music with them. And I took my daughter to go see Green Day, my oldest. She was, I think, 17 or 18 at the time to see them in a venue in Oakland with a thousand people. So you can oh, imagine, you know, they play these huge stadiums and we were 15 feet from the stage and it was quite amazing. So um, I already liked you a lot and now I like you just a little bit more, Amy. <laughs> so thank you for that choice. And with that, we will wrap up the show. This is Aaron Strout, CMO of Real Chemistry and the host of the Real Chemistry podcast. I've had the lovely pleasure of speaking with Amy Grog, who is uh, not only a board member for us and others, but also a market access and value-based pricing expert. Amy, it's been a true pleasure. Thank you for making the time. Thank you so much, Aaron. Want more episodes of the Real Chemistry Podcast? We post a new episode every Thursday. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, the Stitcher app, or iHeartRadio via the Health Podcast Network. Go to realchemistry.com for more info.